second, and before I get to our study this morning, um, it's been a really interesting week. My, my head's kind of bursting. I was sitting over there thinking, I don't know if I can get all my thoughts together. But I wanted to share something with you that I, I think I think we need to hear before we open up the Word, before we go where, where I know the study is at least intended to take us. I had two, two emails and a conversation this week that kind of shaped the way my week went. first email was one that I sent to you all. You may recall it, and maybe you haven't gotten it yet, or if you haven't, or if you're not, by the way, on the email list, you can always sign up in the back uh, just to receive. I, every now and then we'll send out ramblings, <laughs> theses, thoughts, you know, devotional thoughts. But uh, the first one I sent out was about the emerging church, or the emerging church. And perhaps you've heard about that, you kind of buzz around that, or maybe you're very well versed in it. Maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about, but there's a movement right now going on in Christianity that's called the emerging or emergent movement. And depending on how well versed you are in it, uh, probably determines whether or not you will be considered an emergent. And in the email I sent out, I was just advising caution and advising uh, that you approach all things, that we approach all things from a biblically sound perspective. One of the things that the emergent church does do is challenge all the, all the norms and the traditions. And anytime we're challenging traditions, you know, I'm okay with that. I'm not a completely traditional guy myself. But as we challenge traditions, we have to be careful, the old phrase, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think a lot of times in the church over the last 2,000 years, we walked out in the street and we found the baby out there and thought, we shouldn't have done that. Maybe we went too far. And that's the danger, I believe, in a nutshell. It's a very simplistic uh, statement to say, but I, I think the danger of this emerging movement is, is challenging everything to say, hey, it's all relative, and even your understanding of Scripture and even what the Bible says is, is really somewhat of a, a relative thing. And the emerging church is very experiential. That, that It's very into getting people to experience God. Not a bad thought. I mean, isn't that what we do when we worship? Don't we desire to experience God and have the experience of Jesus in our lives on a day-to-day basis? Great thought, but sometimes it can be taken to an extreme where the experience of man is more important than the worship of God. So I was thinking through all of this, and what it really came down to for me, I, I next had a conversation with a, with a young pastor friend of mine, he's in another state, and he... And I asked him a question, I said, what do you think about the emergent church? And boy, off he went, because he's very well versed in it. And even considers himself to be an emergent. And at first it kind of bothered me, but we talked for an hour, hour and a half the other night. And as we were talking, I started to realize, wow, a lot of things that he's saying here that I agree with. Not some of the weird radical stuff, but, you know, he was talking about simplicity. And I went, I like that. Talking about not being afraid to challenge the norms and the mores and the way we do things to force us back to Scripture. I like that. And after I hung up the phone, I, I admit at first I was a little confused, but the more I prayed about it, the more I thought about it, the more I realized it's all about definition. How does the church define itself in the world today? Are we hot to be evangel- evangelicals? And I tell you what, regardless of who you vote for in the upcoming election, and I'm not even making a statement about who I like or whatever, but it kind of offends me to be called a Huckabee evangelical. Because I'm not. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. 
even the term evangelical has a political connotation in our country like we all as, as Christians just kind of lockstep down this same dumb road oh <laughs> Huckabee's our man you know and, and Huckabee may be your man great but how do we define ourselves? So I was all into this mindset of defining ourselves as a church. And how is the bridge especially? Because this is, this is my area. This is our, our field here. How does the bridge define itself in, in this area? And really the answer I kept coming back to is we, we don't have to. We don't have to define ourselves. The Lord does that. The Word defines who we are in Christ. The Spirit tells us, this is who you are. Adopted sons and daughters of the King. And then I got the second email. And I won't say anything, I've got to protect confidentiality here, but the second email broke my heart. Because it was from a person in our fellowship who was struggling with their own definition. And suddenly to me, the way the church defines itself just kind of fell away in face of each one of us. How are we defined? Am I defined as a stepchild of God? Some of you feel that way. Just kind of not quite loved. Not quite on the inside. Not quite there. You know, you know Jesus died for you, but, but the emotion, the experience, the, the knowledge, feeling the love of God is something that you're not quite reaching or, or, or knowing. Others have no problem with that. They just revel in grace. And I think it's a lifelong process for all of us. I don't think there's instantaneous answers. I know the Lord heals instantaneously. I also know sometimes the Lord the Lord works on us over a long period of time, tenderly and gently, because possibly the wounds in our lives are too deep for him to just rip out and fix right there. He he carefully bandages and applies his love a little at a time drawing us into relationship with him. The Apostle John had a great definition for himself. It's one that I would invite you to start wearing. It's a great moniker for a Christian. He said he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. For his part, John was a disciple. I'm following Jesus. For God's part, John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you may not always experience it. And you may not always feel it. And you may have so many wounds in your life that feeling the love of God is, is difficult for you. But I invite you to repeat it. And I invite you to pray it. And I invite you to open your eyes to the Word of God, which is so much about His love for every single individual person. Jesus set up the church. He gives the church definition. That's great. But you've heard this before, I'm sure. If you were the last person on earth, Jesus would have died for you. So great is His love, not just for the world, not just for the church, but for the individual person. That He died for you in a heartbeat. He did. And so, Father, this morning, I, I pray that You will teach us how to embrace this great love. 
Lord, I realize this is something beyond knowledge and intellect and understanding. This goes directly to the heart. Father, it angers me that there is such sin in the world that love is difficult to see. Jesus, you said because of the increase of wickedness in these last days, the love of many will grow cold. Father, I I pray you help us to know your love. How wide, how deep, how high, Father, is your true love for us. And Jesus, I ask you that the more we learn to live in your love and embrace that and, and And since it is absolute truth, I pray it will change the way we love other people. I ask you to teach us how to live out of your love. How to express the love you've already expressed for us. And again, Father, even at times when we don't feel that love, when emotionally we're having trouble getting our arms around it, I pray that you would teach us to live by your example of love, giving out that love. Because, Father, I believe in so doing, we will experience your love even more. Holy Spirit, from this place, from this place of your divine grace, your divine embrace, I pray that you will motivate us and compel us in Christ Jesus to be the people you define us to be. Disciples who you love. In Jesus' name, amen. With that in mind, let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5 Beginning in verse 1 Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is David's third anointing. First anointed by Samuel as a shepherd to be king over Israel, and it would be years and years before he finally was anointed the second time by Judah. You saw that in chapter 2 of this book. And now finally all of Israel anoints David king. Verse 4 tells us David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away, thinking, David cannot enter here. 
Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, through the water tunnel. Therefore they shall say, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around, from the Milo and inward. David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. The taking of Zion. The taking of Jerusalem. And from this point forward, Jerusalem is in the hands of Israel. Jerusalem is the city of God. Jerusalem, the, the, the one place on earth that God said, this is my city. And I proclaim this to be my own. And the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. I'm not talking about the countdown to Super Tuesday. Pundits are debating the effectiveness of Obama's wave of change versus Hillary's tearful humanity. They've been touting again Huckabee's evangelical base against Romney's, I don't know, pocketbook. I'm still not sure what Romney's offering here, but the clock has been ticking. It has nothing to do with our our, uh, election process. Stephen Myers, reporting for that conservative bastion, the New York Times wrote the following on uh, Friday from Jerusalem. President Bush outlined Thursday in the clearest terms so far the shape of a two-state peace treaty he is hoping to broker between Israel and the Palestinians by the end of his term. He called for the redrawing of borders and compensating Palestinians and their descendants for homes they left in what is now Israel. By the way, that would be homes left 40 to 60 years ago. He's calling for compensation. In the face of deep skepticism from both sides, Mr. Bush expressed confidence that a final peace treaty would be signed in the next year. Appearing with Mr. Abbas in Ramallah, Mr. Bush also expressed strong support for a future Palestinian state without pockets of Israeli settlements, saying Swiss cheese isn't going to work when it comes to the outline of a state. Never mind that the creation of a Palestinian state will make Israel into a state of Swiss cheese. It's been an interesting week in Israel. And if you follow these things, and I know some of you do, President Bush has staked his reputation and his administration on a carved up Israel and a divided Jerusalem for the sake of peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians by the year's end. Now the liberal Israeli news company Haaretz wrote the following. They said U.S. President George W. Bush said Thursday he's confident that the Israelis and the Palestinians will reach a peace deal in 2008 saying in order for there to be lasting peace President Abbas and Prime Minister Omer have to come together and make tough choices. Bush said at a, pre- at a joint press conference after meeting with the boss, quote, I'm convinced they will and I believe it's possible, not only possible, I believe it's going to happen, that there will be a signed peace treaty by the time I leave office in January 2009. That's what I believe, President Bush said. Genesis chapter 17 verse 7 God said to Abraham I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession how long? 
everlasting, and I will be their God. President Bush, that's what I believe. Deuteronomy 12, verse 5 says, You shall seek the Lord God at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling, and there you shall come. And this is stated five times in Deuteronomy chapter 12. You will come to the place that I choose. The place that I determine. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 48. 1 Kings 11, verse 13. You may just want to jot some of these verses down. Jerusalem is called the city God has chosen for Himself. No other city on earth has ever been called that. Psalm 132, verse 13 says, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. In Zechariah chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, God is speaking to Zion and He says the following, Thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory He has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. <laughs> Can you imagine reaching out and touching the apple of God's eye? When I was a young parent and my kids were real small, they would reach up and you know, grab the face. And from time to time, they poked me in the eye, and I didn't react well to that. <laughs> he who touches Zion touches the apple of his eye. Zechariah 2.10 Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And by the way, Zion is absolutely clear. It's, it's not a metaphor for the place of God. Zion is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Zion. And when you read the word, the name Zion, in the Hebrew Scriptures, they're talking about Jerusalem. Very specifically. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. A verse familiar to you, Bible students. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reelings, to all the peoples around and when the siege is against Jerusalem it will also be against Judah it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples and all who lift it will be severely injured all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it and that's what I believe that's what I believe there's absolutely no question of the everlasting promise God made to the Jewish people regarding both the land and the apple of his eye, Zion, Jerusalem. It's the only city on earth, I will say for a third time, that God specifically chose for himself. And no timetable ever set by an American president or any world leader can stand against the timetable set by God. But when did all this begin? When did Jerusalem truly become significant? We haven't really heard much about Jerusalem in our studies through the scriptures up till now. A couple of things we've seen. But it's the subject of our, of our study this morning. For here in 2 Samuel, the kingdom of Israel is about to step into its greatest form historically. It will reach its zenith during the kingdom reign of Solomon. But David is going to usher this thing in. And with the taking of Zion, that is Jerusalem, David will establish a capital city which has remained the epicenter of world events for 3,000 years. 
Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7, speaking of God's Messiah, says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The peace of Jerusalem. That's the peace of Jerusalem that we're called to pray for in Psalm 122 verse 6. The Bible says very clearly, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. People ask, well, how do I pray for the peace of Jerusalem when I know that war is coming, when I know that struggle and strife is coming? The peace of Jerusalem is defined by the coming of Messiah to reign in that peace. And God will bring it. God will establish it, and we are to pray for it. But as we're once again going to consider this piece of divine real estate, we need to recognize something of great practicality in this study for us. I again was talking to my friend about the emergent church and, and kind of the way they define things and use things. Use things and, and, and emergent is very into metaphors. Let's use metaphors and, and stories. And, and actually, and this is something I agree with, it's a reach back to more Hebrew thinking rather than Greek thinking. Those of you who come pretty consistently on Wednesday nights, you may remember we talked about this a little while ago. That we as Americans and in the Western culture tend to have a Greek mindset, which is logical and intellectual. Show me the verse, tell me what I have to do, and I'll do it. Hebrew thinking is very different. The Jewish people, even today, think in pictures and stories, which is why Jesus taught in parables, because it spoke so well to that culture. It speaks to our culture as well. We all love a good story. But what's interesting, and I began to think through, what we tend to do as we study through, what I do as I'm teaching through the scriptures, is we look at the historical event as absolute truth. We know that it happened, but then we tend to look a little bit for pictures. Okay, so how does this apply? What can we learn or see here in this story? And there's something of that type of picture in the story this morning that I believe is very important and practical for us. But before we get there... We need to recognize again the historicity of what happened. David captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites. I mentioned Wednesday night. You can see in Jerusalem, you go down into this section of Jerusalem. It's to the south of the Temple Mount. And you head down these steps and into the city of David, which has been an archaeological find. It's it's, it's amazing. Just walk down the steps and to see walls and, and structures left of what used to be the city of David himself. And you get down to the very bottom and come around to the left and along the road there at the base of the Kidron Valley there's a wall. And our our guide pointed this out to us and it blew my mind. He said, we call this the Jebusite Wall because this wall has been standing since before the days of David. It's over 3,500 years old. And I just stood there looking at the wall going, remnant of a Jerusalem even before David conquered it. It blew my mind. It's an awesome picture. The Jebusites were there first. The Jebusites, by the way, shouldn't have been there at all had the Israelites done what God told them to do. He said, come into the land and drive the Canaanites out from the land. Here we are all the way into the time of David, second king of Israel, and there are still pockets of Canaanites living throughout the land. And right here in the middle between Benjamin and Judah, in Jerusalem, it's Jebusite stronghold. Now the Jebusites, they're the people, descendants of a man named Jebus, who, his name is interesting, it means trampled upon. Trampled upon. 
Jerusalem has indeed been a trampled upon city. And no surprise, where else would Satan want to trample? But the one city God calls his own, the one city the Lord claims for his piece of real estate. He says, I will have Jerusalem for my own. And Satan says, well, then we're going to mess it up. It's always what the enemy does. Jerusalem has been conquered, destroyed, built up, conquered, destroyed, and built up more than 35 times in its history. And there are layers and layers of layer, and layers of archaeology in this region because armies would come in, wipe out Jerusalem, tear everything down, and build right on top of it. And so as they dig archaeologically, it's interesting what they continue to find. But if we look at Jerusalem today, Jesus said... Luke 21-24, Jerusalem will be trampled upon by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. No doubt Jesus, in his eternal mind, recalled the name Jebus, trampled upon, and applies it here that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now David has some excellent reasons for making Jerusalem his capital city. Some things to jot down this morning and think about before we get to the practicality of this story. Number one, it was a prudent move politically. It's a very smart move on the part of David to conquer Jerusalem and claim it as his capital. Why? Because like Washington, D.C. in America, Jerusalem sits in between in between the tribal lands. It doesn't belong to any tribe. It sits right on the border of Judah and Benjamin. And in choosing this, David said to both the house of David, which would be the people of Judah, and the house of Saul, people of Benjamin and the rest of Israel, that my capital is for all Israel, not just for Judah. Remember, he was anointed in Judah, in Hebron, by the people of Judah. He could have made his capital Hebron. But he said, no, I want my capital to be Jerusalem, again, like Washington, D.C. is the capital of America, it's its own district, it's not in any particular state. Same thing with Jerusalem. It's a brilliant political move. But it was also a poignant move historically. Go back to Genesis chapter 14. And when you look back and think about Jerusalem, this is the first time we hear about this city in the Bible. Genesis chapter 14 and verse 17. Now in the chapter before this verse, Abraham has just fought a brilliant battle against several different kings. And as he comes back from his return to the defeat, verse 17, of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Verse 18 tells us that another king came. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. And blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, meaning Abraham, gave him, meaning Melchizedek, a tenth of all. That's an interesting story just kind of pops into scripture and then pops back out this man Melchizedek this, this king king of Salem again that is Jerusalem Salem or Jerusalem city of peace Salem meaning peace and so Melchizedek is the king of peace and his very name Melchizedek means king of righteousness but he was not only a king king of peace king of righteousness he's also called priest of God most high 
So this man uniquely in scripture is both priest and king. You see, God says, I don't want you to mix religion and politics. So a king cannot be a priest, and a priest cannot be a king. A king can be a prophet, a priest can be a prophet, but king and priest are two separate offices, except for two people in Scripture, Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. Melchizedek also, interestingly, brought out bread and wine. So here you have, in Genesis 14, symbols of communion that we share is already being shared. Melchizedek brings that out. And we're told that in an act of worship, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe of all the spoils of the battle. A tithe, 10% of everything that he had just won in the recent battle against the kings. You read this little story and you wonder, who might this mysterious Melchizedek, king of peace, king of righteousness, priest of God Most High, who might he be? You know where I'm going with this. Personally, I believe this is none other than Jesus Christ. And I believe that Melchizedek is a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. This always kind of rankles feathers. People say, Jesus in the Old Testament? But we read about Jesus in the New Testament. Hey, if Jesus is God, then he's everywhere he wants to be. And we have seen again and again appearances of God in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we know that Jesus is the physical representation of God. That He is the one, the Word who puts on flesh. And so here I think we may be very well seeing Jesus. And you can go over to Hebrews chapter 7 on your own time. Jot that down, Hebrews 7, for a more in-depth study and insight. The Hebrew writer points out all these things. The Hebrew writer even goes further. He says, hey, we don't have a listing of His mother, Melchizedek's, no father. Where did He come from? Who is He? And the implication in Hebrews chapter 7 is this is Jesus. At minimum, it's a picture, a very strong picture of Jesus. But it's very likely it was Jesus himself. The next time we hear about Jerusalem is over in Joshua chapter 10. Joshua leads the people in conquest of the land. And Jerusalem is now under the authority in Joshua 10 of an Amorite king. An Amorite king with a different name. Not Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, but Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek, which means my lord the king. It's probable that Adonai Zedek was not his name, it was his title. And this guy would kind of co-opted and carry this title as, as king of Jerusalem. But Adonai Zedek is a fascinating picture, not of Jesus Christ, but of Antichrist. And we actually went through and did a, a study on Joshua chapter 10 and looked at, looked at this, this comparison of Adonai Zedek to Antichrist and, and how that tends to play out there in Scripture. And if you want to see more about that, then I advise you to pick up a teaching on Joshua chapter 10. Which, by the way, if you read the PS on my email this week, we're that close to having a website up and running. Uh, in fact, it, it could have been up probably a month ago. But it's, it's ready to go. All of, the, all of the studies that we've done, Genesis through 2 Samuel, through where we are right now, including Revelation, will be on the website. You, you can click on it and listen to it, download the MP3, take it, record it, erase it, you know, whatever you want to do, you can't erase the website. But it's going to be there, so you'll be able to real easily go back and, and get some previous studies that we've done. But no Israelite, up to this point, no Israelite ever fought to take Jerusalem, though it sat smack dab in the middle of the land. It's right there. And everybody just kind of avoided the Jebusites. Part of the problem is it was so defensible, which is amazing that it was trampled upon 35 plus times in history. But Jerusalem stands high 2,400 feet above sea level, which is why you always go up to Jerusalem. 
And it's defended on three sides. It's, it's got sheer mountains coming up on three sides of it. And then on one side of it, it would be strongly defended. And the Jebusites fought. It was impenetrable. Look back in our, in our story here. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 6. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter in here. Now what does this mean? The blind and the lame you shall will, will turn you away. It's a taunt. They're taunting David. Not unlike the Frenchman in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, if you've seen that movie. He says, go away or I shall taunt you a second time. But the taunt was also a Jebusite method of protection. It's a way the Jebusites manned the walls. Check this out. It's interesting, historically, they would use blind men and lame men in the night to protect the city. How so? In the dark of the night, they put the blind men up there to listen. Because they wouldn't have eyes to deceive them as to what might be going on outside the wall. And they would have ears that would be much keener. You may know that as people go blind or lose eyesight, hearing tends to increase greatly. So they put blind men up on the wall to be listeners to what was going on outside the wall. And darkness would have no effect on them. Lame men were also then stationed there. So as soon as the blind men heard something, the lame men would be stuck. They couldn't run away in fear. And so they were the perfect alarm system. Come get us! Save us! We're going to be killed! Come on! We can't can't run! You know? So they put lame men there because they couldn't run away. And blind men there to listen. And it was a method of self-defense and alarm. And the Jebusites are saying, David, you don't have a prayer. You don't have a chance. You can't take this stronghold. Oh yeah? David might say. Number three in your notes, David makes a powerful move militarily. Verse 5, a powerful move militarily. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. By the way, Zion has an interesting meaning. The name can mean one of two things. It can either mean parched place, parched place, or sunny spot. Parched place or sunny spot, and really it all depends on how you look at it. Now think about it, if you had a travel brochure to Jerusalem, which one would draw you or attract you to the city? Come to the parched land of Israel, hot, dry, scorched, and dead. (laughs) Yippee. Or, if you read it like this, come to the sunny spot of Jerusalem, warm, golden, and bright. It depends on how you look at the city. And there are people who look at Jerusalem as a parched place. And they say it's... It's it's the cause of all the world's problems. And it leaves man thirsting. And it's it's a dangerous place to be. And there are others who look at Jerusalem, as I myself do, as golden. I've shared before, when you are on the bus on the tour and you come out from underneath the tunnel into the city for the first time, and especially if you can catch it just right at sunset, you look out the left side of the bus and there's the Temple Mount as the sun is hitting it and it is breathtaking. I mean, it sends a shiver through your bones. Golden, warm, inviting. It all depends on our perspective. Some hate it, some love it passionately. And in our story, David and his men take the stronghold of Zion, and David loved Zion. It was not a parched place to David. It was a sunny spot, a golden, bright place. But how did they do it? How did they take this city, this stronghold, how did they take it? 
Jerusalem is surrounded by valleys, as I said, to the east, to the south, to the west. The only real access point is to the north, which would have been heavily guarded and protected. And herein lies our story. Verse 8. David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. You see, Jerusalem has a problem. They've got to get water up to it. This highly elevated city. And so the water that would run through the Kadron Valley or the other valleys around Jerusalem needed to get up into the city somehow and they had a water tunnel. Carved out. We're not sure, especially the early one. Hezekiah's tunnel is there today, which is a brilliant tunnel. In fact, to build, to dig Hezekiah's tunnel, they had a group of men start down at the bottom and a group of men start up at the top, cutting through stone, and they met in the middle. And it said in, in the Bible, I'll show you when we get there, it said that you could hear the voices of the other guys on the other side as they got closer. And they were all excited, realizing we actually made it to the same spot. Hezekiah's tunnel, and you can walk through it in Jerusalem. But the tunnel prior to that probably wasn't one that could be walked through as much as a, 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 like a waterfall. In fact, the word tunnel here is also translated waterfall later in the scriptures where the psalmist writes, writes deep calls unto deep. And he mentions the waterfalls of God. Same word here. So David says, alright guys, these people have to, they have to drink, they've got to have water, so find the water tunnel. And this tunnel was apparently a 75 foot shaft that plunged from the heights of Jerusalem down to the Kadron Valley below, through which water could be carried up in ropes and buckets and brought up through this shaft. What's later known as the Pool of Siloam, down below, would be the source of this water that was drawn up. That's how we'll get into the city, David says. If we can find the water tunnel, we'll get into the city and we will shaft them. <laughs> David challenged his men and one man immersed a leader and a chief. Second, or First Chronicles chapter 11, verse 5, telling of the same story, says, The inhabitants of Jebu said to David, You shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David had said, Whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. Joab the son of Zeruiah went up first, so he became chief. And David dwelt in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. We put these two records, 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel, put them together, and we know that David challenged his men to find a way in, and that Joab was the man who did it. He found the water tunnel, he crept up, somehow crept up the 75-foot shaft, and was the first man to take out a Jebusite, so David called him his man from that day forward. Now you'll see this in our continuing studies, but Joab is not the best apple in the bowl. As a matter of fact, this guy tends to be not always very smart, certainly not always very nice. In fact, he's somewhat of a brute. If you think of Joab, think of brutish, and that's your man. But from this day forward, David puts him in charge of his armies, calls him his commander because he is the one who found a way up the tunnel and into the stronghold. Now listen to me. That's the story. That's the history. That's the truth. What do we see here? Our King, like King David, our greater than David, Jesus Christ, wants us to take down strongholds. He wants us to go against the embattlements of the enemy. King Jesus, the son of David, would say, Whoever would strike the enemy, let him reach the lame and the blind. 
Interesting. David says, Let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. I believe the converse of that, Jesus would say, Whoever would take the strongholds of the enemy, let him reach the lame and the blind who are loved by Jesus' soul. Will you go after those who are blind to the truth of God's love for them? Will you be the one, like Joab, who finds a way up the shaft, up the tunnel, to rescue the lame who are limping from one day to the next, just trying to figure out how to get by in this life? Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says, How will they, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? He's not talking about me, gang. He's talking about us. Paul writes, How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And I... Christians should be the most beautifully footed people in the world. We should be the ones, when we pull off our shoes, people go, Oh, wow. As opposed to... Can you put those back on, please? Yeah, do our feet stink? Or are they beautiful? Because we are bringing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of God into this world. When David took hold of Zion, it was a prudent political move. It was a poignant historical move. It was a powerful military move. But King Jesus has this request for us, this question. Will you make a prayerful move spiritually? How do we do it? Three quick things to note that I believe King Jesus calls us to have. And the first one, gang, we've got to remain having a kingdom perspective. Ron and I were just talking about this the other night. We have got to maintain, as a church fellowship here, let me just speak specifically to us at the bridge, we have got to maintain a kingdom perspective. And not get caught up in our church, in who we are, in self-definition, to where we're so focused on what's happening in the barn and our comfort and our, our peace and our joy and our life that we begin to ignore the whole reason why God set this thing up, which was to be a kingdom-focused fellowship. A church without membership because we believe anybody who gives their love, their life to Jesus Christ is a member of His church. And we don't want to be, again, it was so fascinating to me, the, the pastor of, I guess I could probably say this, pastor of Common Ground Church, in Oak Harbor sat in the second row Wednesday night of our Bible study and he wants to come back (laughs) I think that's really cool pastor of another church coming to this church for Bible study why not he's my brother Friday morning we sat down and we had coffee with with a pastor another pastor from Christ the King Oak Harbor talk about youth ministry and things going on and how can we partner and what can we do and this whole week that to me has been you know with the other things I shared early on Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And I have been reminded that the Lord calls us to a kingdom perspective. That we are here to affect change in the lives of people around us. Not to be comfortable ourselves. There are plenty of places, sad to say, that you can go if you just want to sit and be comfortable. And I pray the bridge will never be one of those. Luke chapter 10 verse 2, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. John 4.35, Jesus said, Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. And if Jesus said that 2,000 years ago, how much more ripe is the field today? 
How much more ready is the field for us to call out the saving grace of God to proclaim the name of Jesus and invite people into His family for salvation and life? Don't look in. Look out. Have a broad kingdom view. Not a limited church view. It is not kingdom building we're interested in. It's kingdom building we are interested in. Not empire building. We do not want the bridge to become a logo stamp on anything we do. I began thinking again about church planning. When are we gonna, who's going to be the first person that we plan? That we send out to start another church somewhere else? And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, we're not going to start the Bridge Christian Fellowship South. Or the Bridge Christian Fellowship Burlington. Or the Bridge Christian Fellowship Seattle. Or the Bridge Christian Fellowship Vancouver. We will send out people who love the Lord and love the Word and let the Lord define what they're going to be called. And let the kingdom grow and be about the kingdom and not our own name and not our own moniker. How can we reach the greatest number of people for Jesus Christ? It is a kingdom perspective. And I'll admit to you, it's a little scary. It's a little frightening because that will change things. That will continually keep us just a little bit off balance. Because the moment we start to relax and get comfortable, some weirdo from the outside is going to find Jesus, get all passionate and excited, kind of like Spencer did, and change things around here. (laughs) A kingdom perspective, second thing we need, is like Joab, a commander's confidence. A commander's confidence. The commander must ignore the taunts of the enemy. Our satanic enemy would say to us, You are blind. And you are lame. What business do you have thinking you can serve God? Limping along in your life. You got nothing for the kingdom. You're lucky they even let you go to that church. (laughs) Boy, I hope you don't feel that way. Leviticus chapter 21 Verse 16, this is interesting to me. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. No one who has a defect shall approach a blind man or a lame man. Or he who has a disfigured face, which from my own birth would have disqualified me to enter into the temple and offer sacrifice. That was the Old Testament law. People with defects, deformities of any kind could not enter into the temple and offer sacrifice. Well, that's one of those, I don't understand. How could a loving God do that? And you need to understand that at that time, God was drawing a very clear comparison. A very clear definition. He was pointing out man's imperfection in light of God's perfection. He was teaching the people of Israel that I am absolute light and perfection and you can't approach that with your imperfections. This is one of those things that God has taken all history to explain and help us to understand. And in that moment, someone with a defect might have gone, so I'm an outsider. Now the good news is also in Leviticus 16, right after this, the Lord makes provision for those who are deformed or defective in some way physically. He, he makes sure that they are cared for and looked after. But he maintains the standard. Nobody with a defect, the blind or the lame, can enter into the temple and offer sacrifice, the food of their God. Now, what's interesting to me is that Matthew 21, verse 14, Jesus comes along 
and we see something incredible happening in the temple. Listen to this. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The very people who were not to approach the, the Lord in offering, not to bring sacrifice, not to bring the food of God before him, now are flocking to Jesus in the temple and he's healing them. Where did he heal them? In the temple. Why did he heal them? That they could come and serve the Lord like everybody else. Because in Jesus, we who were disqualified now are qualified. We who are deformed now are rightly formed. We who are wounded or broken or, or bad off were now healed. And we are now able to have a commander's confidence to serve the Lord. To go out and fight for the Lord. And number three, a kingdom view, a commander's confidence. And number three, we are called to have a royal resolve. I may not be the most learned person in the world. I may not be the best trained or the most gifted or the most qualified. I may be one that other people even look at and say, yeah, they're there, but they don't really do much. They don't really have a whole lot to offer. I may feel that way. I might look in the mirror on a Sunday morning and say, Lord... What are you doing with me? Are you sure? We question our qualifications all the time. But you realize that in Jesus Christ you are called, Jim, you know this, to a royal resolve. The Lord poured into Jim this morning what he needed to hear, what he needed to understand, and it is simply this. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The royal resolve, the royal mindset says, man, I may have a crummy background, but in Jesus Christ, I am royalty, man. I am royalty. Susan, you remember the conversation we had years ago about this? Man, it's one thing to talk about the fact that we are sinful and to be repentant. And even to recognize that we're flawed human beings. But on the other side, the Lord says, yeah... But with my blood covering you, you're royalty. You are priests. You are, you are destined for this. You are being prepared for it. A chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Why are you saying that, Peter? So, so that we can look good, right? So that our righteousness may be seen by all. So that non-Christians, when they're around me, feel uncomfortable because I'm so much better than they are. Or perhaps... There's another reason we're called to righteous living. Peter says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of His visitation. Why would someone glorify God on the day of His visitation? Because they have been saved. Because they saw someone else living changed by Jesus with a royal mindset that I am a child of the King. I do belong. I am the Beloved. And as people notice that and see that in your life, it will affect change in them. You have been called out of darkness into light. Now you are a bringer of that very light. What greater qualifications do I need to share the Gospel? Not seminary training. 
boy, not seminary training. That'll just mess you up. You get thinking about definitions. You know? Just life in Jesus Christ. Simple. Now we started out again talking about Jerusalem this morning, 2008. You look at Jerusalem, it's a seemingly impossible, impassable situation. And there are times I watch what's going on there and I find my back getting up or I find myself getting concerned or I find myself saying, Lord, don't let President Bush achieve what he's trying to achieve here. And very gently, the Lord says, Rick, I got it. You sure you don't need me to take care of it? No, I got it. it." See, what I'll take care of Jerusalem... You tell people about Jesus. I'll take care of this stronghold. You, like Joab, go take down other strongholds. You find ways of climbing up that water tunnel and getting in. You be the first one to take out the enemy. You reach the lame and the blind who are loved by the soul of the son of David. Go through the water tunnel. The question that remains for us is who's going to go? Who will go? Who will take the risk and speak the name of Jesus? Even though it might invite a momentarily uncomfortable situation like climbing up a water tunnel must have been. Who will put themselves in the position of possibly being between a rock and a hard place? Who will take the risk of getting stuck of being in a place where the enemy is going to try to pick you off Who will take that risk and go through the water tunnel? Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. Isaiah writes, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he said, Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me, Lord. Isaiah, a man who by his own definition was a man of unclean lips, said, I'll go. I don't know what I have to offer except Jesus in me, but I will go. And Jesus said in Matthew 28:19, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's our challenge, and that's our call, and the challenge has been given. How do you respond to it? Worship team, come on back up. Let's stand and and pray together. Stand stand if you will. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will develop in us this heart that we've been talking about. And that you will give us opportunity and divine appointments to share Jesus in our lives to go out from here and be a kingdom minded group of people Lord Jesus lift up our confidence and our courage knowing that we are covered by your spirit knowing that the right words will be given to us in the right moment if we but trust in you and teach us to be be bold and not to hold back and not to fear the enemy Show us how to take the strongholds. And may this church be a blessing to your kingdom and not just to itself. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.